First of all, let me thank the Atlantic Council for such a splendid job of accommodating such an extraordinary audience. Um, and uh, we are honored to have partnered with them and with Penn and with uh, the Koch Institute and with, who else? FPRI. SICE. SICE. Dan Hamilton, is still here, right? My task is made all the more difficult by the fact that we have uh, had such excellent panels so far, and they have gotten into the area of policy uh, rather than diagnosis, although the discussion of sanctions, of course, was both policy and diagnosis. I'm going to try to approach, and, and I've had the pleasure of talking to each of our panelists in advance, I'm going to try to approach the moderator role a little bit differently. That is, some very quick rounds. One, an overview, a snapshot of what they feel should be done differently or the same in the next administration. Secondly, go into a very brief period of analysis of why, what's, you know, what are the driving factors. Thirdly, and the most important round, and I want to say plenty of time for that, uh, is going to be, okay, what does the policy look like? Is it going to be something like containment? Is it engagement? Is it somewhere in between restraint, as it's put in the title of our panel? Uh, it's, a, it's a tall mission, so I'm uh, a tall order, and therefore I'm going to spend very little time introducing the panel. You know their, their main, um, uh, their, their attributes are on the program, or their main uh, affiliations, and now I probably have lost the important things that I want to say in addition <laughs> to that. Um, first of all, I'll, I'm going to go in, um, uh, well, in, in alphabetical order, and I'll ask you each to raise your hands when I say your name. Uh, <laughs> Judy Ansley, uh, in addition to her, uh, above all, uh, Assistant to the President, Deputy National Security Advisor, as you know from the program, but you also should know that she has extensive experience on Capitol Hill, uh, where she rose to the level of Staff Director of the Senate Armed Services Committee. She now serves on the Institute, U.S. Institute, of, the board of the U.S. Institute of Peace. I want to, I'm saying these things to give you a little more perspective on where they come from, uh, in terms of where their perspective is. Uh, Dr. Evelyn Farkas, if I'm pronouncing it properly, Evelyn. Uh, uh, so she's a non-resident fellow of the Atlantic Council, but uh, very importantly, until just a year ago, was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And before that, she had a wide range of experience on security issues, uh, not only, uh, well, both on, uh, with the U.S. military on Capitol Hill and in the think tank world. Uh, John Herbst is the director of the Eurasia Center. Uh, let me th repeat my thanks to you and to Alina for the extraordinary job you've done in setting this up and uh, your wonderful cooperation with us as the junior partners in the endeavor. Uh, and finally, he, John, uh, I know him because... <laughs> We worked together at the State Department for a time. He's one of the most distinguished career professionals uh, of his generation on uh, working not only on Russia, Sovietology, Russia, Eurasia, but also on the Middle East, all of which are highly relevant, of course, to our discussion today. Finally, uh, Dr. William Ruger, Vice President of Research and Policy at the Charles Koch Institute, but as he points out, he's also Vice President for the foundation, the Charles Koch Foundation, so it's a very busy job. Uh, he's a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, very important to note, and he's had a, an extensive academic career in the areas that we're talking about. Um, so I said I wanted to uh, discuss the, uh, organize the discussion in three phases. The overview, I'm going to ask each of you in uh, probably inverse, 
if you promise to keep it less than one minute or one minute and two seconds um, in, in inverse order. He warned us. He's very strict. Yes. Uh, to, to answer at the same time two questions. To what extent should the American, next American president change U.S.-Russia policy? Or to what extent should, instead should it remain the same? And connected to that, in his first or her first 100 days, what specific actions or declarations should the new president make on some of the key issues, such as Syria, Ukraine, cyber attacks, economic, all the things we've already discussed? And then uh, we'll go back to uh, second round of questions, analyzing why. What are, how do you justify it? Will, go ahead. So I could do that in one minute, no doubt. All right. Small questions. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Time is so, running. So I, I do think there should be change, but I think we need to kind of step back from the particulars of Russia for a second and move to the question which should guide the particulars, which is what role should the United States play in the world, particularly in terms of our grand strategy. And you know, to me, our grand strategy should focus on making America safer. That means we should have a, a defense capability second to none. But the policies we've been pursuing uh, oftentimes go under the term primacy or liberal hegemonialism over the last 15 to 25 years, I just don't think have been working. So they're not a good guide for action ahead, nor should they be. So I think we need a more realist-centered approach um, to the world and to Russia that has a laser-like focus on America's safety and our vital national interests, uh, that's more prudential about using uh, the M of uh, the dime uh, that we just heard about, uh, and a greater realization of the problem of unintended consequences and the ignoring of, and less uh, ignoring of, constra of constraints. And I think that's been one of the problems with our approach to Russia, is that it hasn't been all that realistic. Um, and so we, we, need to be, we need to ask some key questions about Russia, uh, or that guide our Russia thinking. Before so, you ask questions, what does the president do in the first 100 days? <laughs> that's your next question. Uh, but no, but I think you should ask these questions, or she. Right? Um, you have to think through carefully what is required and possible as opposed to what is simply ideal. And too frankly, I think American leaders have talked about what's, 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 what should be that goal, that kind of, uh, you know, kind of cloud, uh, uh, kind of in the, in the sky goal, as opposed to thinking like, what can actually be achieved? Uh, what's realistic? What are the constraints? How is the world going to get a vote or the particular country? Um, and I also think that we have to think about how our actions will be perceived and what those consequences will be. And I think NATO enlargement, to kind of hint where I'll go later, has been a prime example of ignoring some of those potential consequences. So in sum, the policies of the new president should be very different, if I understand correctly. Exactly. Okay. El Evelyn? Okay. Uh, so first of all, I, I did uh, think ahead about your question, but mainly in the Russia context, though I'm happy to uh, pull up and talk about it more generally if we have time. I think we have to continue to deter Russia. That much is clear. But I think we need to do more to deter Russia. And I won't go into the details unless we have time in a second round. We but, will. We will. OK. So certainly, that would include doing what we're doing in the NATO context. I think that has actually been sufficient to deter Russia. But we need to keep doing that and consider whether we need to do more. Probably the areas where we need to do more, and General Breedlove knows this very well, is in the air defense arena and also in the maritime arena. There's been a lot of emphasis on what we need to do on land. So continue to do, deter Russia, but more robustly. In the outside of NATO context, that means considering giving lethal, I mean, I'm an advocate not for just considering, but actually giving lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova, those countries on the front line, who have no NATO Article 5 guarantee, so the least we could do is give them those weapons. 
Secondly, I think we need to continue to leave the door open for cooperation with Russia. This is something General Rilov mentioned as well. But let's be realistic. And I'm also very much uh, a fan of the idea of being much more rational, realist, prudent in our policy. Not, no more wishful thinking with regard to Russia. We can keep the door open. We can keep our hand extended in certain areas. But we should not fruitlessly run after the Russians in the hopes that they might cooperation, even on issues like counterterrorism, where I have actively been one of those people trying to get them to cooperate in the past professionally, and it hasn't worked. So I would prefer to actually have them make the first move when it comes to things of that nature. Second, or third rather, we need to restart our dialogue on strategic stability issues. And General Breedlove touched upon it. I'm sure others mentioned it as well. But we, the area where there's the greatest danger in our relationship with Russia has to do with strategic stability writ large, which is really our balance of military power with Russia. That includes everything from cyber all the way up to strategic nuclear. The Russians have, rightfully so, a great deal of fear about our capabilities. And that fear has driven them to a dangerous military doctrine, which we can talk about more in Q&A if you like. Um, but I think it, it very much merits a rational decision discussion with the Russians about why it's dangerous, what assumptions they're making in, that, in, in designing their dialogue, and also in their military modernization and how they're going about it. So those, that's the three things. The fourth one is hold Russia accountable. I believe that the international community has done a paltry, uh, I don't even know what the right adjective is, but a miserable job. Uh, holding Russia accountable. We're making some progress with regard to the MI-17 shootdown over Ukraine uh, in 2014, but on the issue of the cyber attacks against the United States, that's still lacking. I think we have not yet shown that we have taken sufficient action to deter Russia from ongoing activity. Okay, you're giving me the sign. Um, Budapest <laughs> Memorandum. Non-proliferation is not a joke, and, we, and the Budapest Memorandum is not just about giving a random political guarantee to Ukraine. It has to do with the non-proliferation regime. We did it because the deal was Ukraine would give up their nuclear weapons. What other country would give them up now for a political deal with the United States and the other guarantors in the face of this failure by the international community to do anything to respond on that front? So that's still hanging out there. Okay, then of course, obviously the interventions and continued occupations that General Breedlove mentioned, the violation of the INF Treaty. See, I'm getting breathless. There's a whole long list. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then stop now and we'll go in second and force, third rounds. Well, yeah. just, just if I could, because there's just about to be an exercise again um, with Russia and Belarus on the NATO border. Violations of the Vienna document. So the OSCE, that's an organization that probably hasn't been mentioned very much today. We need to work more, and I can talk more about the what next in the 100 days about OSCE. So, so that's my policy, quick and breathless um, <laughs> attempt to answer so you. So policy would be breathlessly different in the next administration <laughs> if the next president follows you, just as it would be in a very different way if Will's policies were followed. I guess it's the, the one minute has ended up being two or three. So to be fair, well, you can have as many as two or three, but if you can keep it to one, that's great. I'll stick to one. I, I think what I'll do is, is leave the specifics for your second, your second question. Um, I think that in terms of Russia policy, I, I think we, we need to change the dynamic. So, it, it's not working now. Something needs to change. So I think we need a stronger, much more assertive approach uh, to Russia going forward. And quite frankly, the old adage, peace through strength, comes to mind. Uh, it, we have to show strength as we go forward. Um, I, and I think, to agree with, uh, with William, um, 
I do think you start with setting goals. Um, I don't agree that the goal should be only what we think we can achieve. I think we set a goal, it should be an aspirational goal, and then let's see what steps we can take to achieve it. And I would hope the next president, whoever he or she might be, will set the goal for Europe of, you know, the goal that, that General Breedlove mentioned, Europe whole free and at peace, and, you know, with nations um, able to determine their path and to be secure in their borders. and. Uh, that those would be sort of the top goals, and I did like your uh, prosperity uh, addition to that. And I think that we also have to recognize that we are dealing with a very aggressive Russia that doesn't share these values. They have completely different values. They want a buffer zone. They, you know, I mean, Putin has established as one of his top foreign policy priorities protecting Russian speakers wherever they may be. And there are a lot of them in our NATO in our uh, NATO member countries. So we have to be very aware of that. Now, this doesn't mean we break ties completely. This doesn't mean we don't engage at all. It just means we have to be very realistic as we set our policies going forward. Um, and then just a couple of other general points. I think as we go forward with Russia, we have to make it very clear that there will be consequences for their actions and that we are willing to take those, those steps to show that there are consequences. Um, NATO really has to get back to its original purpose. NATO has to be a deterrent force, given where we are in Europe today. Our nations need protection, and Article 5 is real. Uh, hopefully, it won't be challenged anytime soon. And I think we also, is just an overall uh, thing, the US really has to reestablish its leadership on the world stage. I think a little bit too much, rightly or wrongly, we are perceived as weak on the world stage, and we've done a little bit too much leading from behind. And I think we need I think that dynamic needs to change if we are to successfully engage with Putin. And I'll leave specifics to the next round. Thank you. Okay? I think you were under, okay. well, oh, under three good. minutes. Okay. <laughs> we're back on we'll schedule. We'll give you an extra minute later. John? Okay, I'll also start at, start at a high level of abstraction. In the earlier sessions today, and in this one too already, uh, we've talked about what, is the, what are our interests? And I think any conversation has to begin with our interests. And it's really pretty simple, and so I, I apologize if what I'm saying is quite basic. The post-Cold War era, despite all the headlines about unpleasant news, of unpleasant news, has been the most prosperous and the most stable in world history. And the basis of that has been peace in Europe. The two greatest wars in world history began in Europe. And establishing NATO in 1940, or shortly after World War II, provided the basis for building a global stability system. And the, that was the path to global prosperity. Now, I'm telling you this because our interests are in maintaining that. That is the vital interest of every American. And right now, we have the world's second greatest military power with one of the world's largest economies, changing borders in Europe by force, so explicitly saying he wants to upend that security order. <coughs> that is a vital threat to our interests. And part of the confusion in Washington and globally on this is because we had a president who claimed that the crisis in Europe was a regional crisis. He just didn't get it. Now, one of the reasons he didn't get it is because his predecessor had us engaging in the Middle East in ways that were beyond our capacity. And in that way, I'm sympathetic to some of the things that Bill said, that we can't do everything we might want to do. But we have a vital interest in stopping Putin in Europe. 
So we, I definitely think the next president should have a different policy than the current president. Also, this objective of ours to deter Putin, to stop him in Ukraine, which is the current battleground, is very much within our capacity. We and the EU together have something like a GDP 17 times out of Russia. We remain by far the world's leading military power. We have the ability to stop Putin in Ukraine without involving American troops by using a combination of our economic power, our diplomatic power, and not our military, not our military men, but our military equipment. So what I would like to see the next president of the United States do is say explicitly, my job is to reaffirm the transatlantic relationship to Europe, strengthen NATO, help the EU to strengthen itself, which is also in American interest, and to stop a revanchist power in the Kremlin from upending this world. We do that, a simple statement like that will remove most of the power of Moscow's massive disinformation campaign. Because if American leaders and European leaders are saying what plain evidence tells us every day that what's going on in Ukraine's Donbass is not separatists fighting against Kiev, it's not a civil war, it's a hybrid war led, financed, staffed, and equipped from Moscow. Suddenly, newspapers begin to report this straight. And with that, once we acknowledge that, we can develop the policies, relatively modest within our means, which will be able to stop that and secure the basis of global stability and prosperity. And, one more point, watching a relatively weak West respond to clear aggression only encourages the longer-term danger to the United States, which is a, an economically powerful and a growing power militarily, China, who has been pursuing some of its own revisionist aims in the South and East China Seas. I think I said it enough. That's a good summary. <laughs> Very, still, you know, all four quite different policies <clears throat> coming from different perspectives for the reasons you already know. Uh, all good policy depends on good analysis of the fundamentals. We've heard allusion to great military power, lesser economic power, but still important uh, uh, intentions, not only in this panel, but in the previous two outstanding panels. So, but I do want to dwell, before we go, I ask you to go into more specifics uh, about exactly how the policy should be, whether it's more, you know, more robust containment, whether it's the other titles that we were given for this panel. Uh, I do want to go into the analysis by asking basically three questions simultaneously, but they all are inter deeply interrelated. Uh, so the first question is whether the current dilemma, the current confrontation that we have between you and Ru Russia is driven primarily by Vladimir Putin and his global strategy for, as General Breedlove said, for uh, becoming a major, being recognized as a major world power, or, and or what has not been mentioned, and I would strongly emphasize myself, his, I did in a question earlier, uh, his need for political survival, the ex existential threat that democracy and Western, the rise of the West can, uh, does represent for him. Uh, so, the, the, so the question is, is it driven primarily by Vladimir Putin and the circle around him and his, his agenda, their agenda? Or instead, is it driven primarily by a mistake in Euro, U.S. and European policies during either or both the Obama administration, as several speakers have said, or 
the Bush 43 administration, as other speakers have mentioned. Uh, and this, of course, includes NATO expansion, some of the other things, the, the support for the color revolutions. So uh, this, these two questions, of course, uh, raise the question of what the lessons of history and what the considerations of grand strategy, as you put it, Will, in, in our private phone conversation, how these play into. So uh, these are the three questions of an analytical sort before which I asked you to come back and defend, and not defend, but spell out in greater detail the policies that you've outlined already, all four somewhat different. But when I do that, then I will come back to ask you for the first 100 days uh, if anything special is to be done then. So we went, uh, in, in what order did we go the first time? We, so that means, but we just ended. No, I'm gonna, we're gonna mix it up. Uh, so we're gonna, uh, Evelyn first. Okay, <laughs> all right. Then Will. Okay. Uh, then Judy, and then John, because John just had the last word. Can't gotcha. let him have it a second time. <laughs> well, he's kind of the boss. I mean, <laughs> um, and he did go over two and a half minutes. He did. So I think it's important to understand what or at least for me, I have to first start with what are the Kremlin's objectives? And it's not just Putin, but it's the people around him, the group around him. Number one, it's to keep him in power, to keep themselves in power. Number two, it's as already been touched upon, to ensure that Russia is regarded and is indeed playing a role as a power, a great power, equal to all the other great powers of the world. Number three, which is related to one and two, is that this Kremlin, that Putin, is against regime change. He's against it because it touches on number one, his desire to stay in power, and his per perception, rightly or wrongly, that the America and the West is actually interested in seeing his regime change, which, of course, can become a self-fulfilling prophecy if he continues along the road that he's on. <laughs> Um, and then, but is also related to wanting to demonstrate that Russia is a great power, which we see playing out in the context of Syria. So those are the objectives of the Kremlin. And I think that that, that is always important to bear in mind. The, the foreign policy that the Kremlin is now advancing is also a reaction to the fact that Kremlin can no longer deliver on the economic deal that he made with the people when he came to power first in 2000. He's now switched horses to the nationalist horse. So he's going to make the Russian people feel good about being part of the Federation based on making Russia great again. And that, that means that what he's essentially advancing is a 19th century perspective on Russia's role in Europe in particular, Europe and Central Asia, so with regard to its periphery. And that clashes directly with what our perspective is with regard to Russia's role in the international system because the Kremlin sees that the countries in particular around its periphery do not have a full sovereignty, that they have limited sovereignty, that the Kremlin has the right to exercise control over those territories indirectly or directly, but primarily indirectly, politically, economically, although obviously also with force. And from our perspective, we believe that sovereign states not only have the right to defend their territories, but that the people within those sovereign states have the right to determine their government and if they would like to be democratic and determine their own futures, their institutional affiliations as states, we support that. That is a value that we hold dear and runs into direct conflict with the Kremlin. So I think that's at the root of what's going on, and I'll stop there. Thank you. So, Will? Yeah, so, you know, I don't have a brief uh, for Putin or his aggressive actions, um, but I think well, it's Well, the just, question is, is that what is driving or not driving Right, but I think, the, I think it's, it's uh, you know, it takes two to tango, right? 
And so I think we have to acknowledge that there have been actions on both sides that have not made the relationship what it needs to be or could be. Uh, and so I think we have to acknowledge that our behavior in the post-Cold War era has, has been part of that. And, and no one less than General Breedlove ran through a list that, you know, as long as his arm, of things that we did that provoked the security dilemma inside of Russia and caused them to fear for themselves. And this is a country that has been invaded multiple times uh, in which most recently happened in the lives of people still alive in Russia. And that is a reality that I don't think we should ignore. And Americans, again, you know, we, you know, uh, the Cold War for most Americans is ancient history, but the experience of World War II uh, is not for, for Russia. So I think we have to be careful. And, and I want to I kind of talk about the beginning of the, of the end of the Cold War, uh, George H.W. Bush. And he was pressured by staffers at one point uh, to go to Berlin as the, as the wall was following, falling. And he said uh, something I think really smart. He said, well, what would I do if I went to Berlin? Dance on the wall? And, well, we not only danced on the wall, but we danced over the wall, and we danced right up to their border. And I think we, have to be, we need to kind of go back to that kind of wisdom of HW, which is to kind of understand how these engagements, how these even choices by uh, other states uh, are going to affect us and to really try to calibrate or affect them and to try to calibrate properly so that we are focused on, on achieving things that are positive. And I think there are positive ways uh, to heal the relationship and that would be good for both of us. Um, but again, I mean, so, so this idea, for example, Evelyn talked about, well, letting other countries choose their institutional affiliations. Well, that sounds great and, and I think that's a, that's a good ideal. But that doesn't, that we get to also choose our affiliations. And so, for example, with Ukraine or Georgia or other countries that might want to join NATO, we have to ask the question, is that actually good for our safety? And it, it's, not, it's not a club that has open membership. It's a club that the club should decide who gets to be in. And we should think again about what might be the consequences of that. Okay, answer. so this is policy. Don't, don't, Sorry. don't okay. expand NATO. Okay. okay. But that, that, this, we're still in the analytical stage. So, John. What, on the question, is it primarily Putin-driven? Is it primarily mistakes of the U.S.? And the perspective of history, the causality of the present dilemma and the underlying factors before you can make policy. Uh, I'd recommend to everyone in this room to read The End of Empire by the Harvard historian Serhii Plohi, uh, a book about the last year or two of the Soviet Union. The reason why I recall it now is that in talks between Russians and Ukrainians, in um, late 1990, early 1991. You hear the most liberal Russians we've seen in the past generation, or two generations, or for that matter, centuries. Yeltsin and Gorbachev, both telling then um, leader Kravchuk of Ukraine that, you know, if you, if you decide to have a referendum and be independent of us, we're gonna have to really worry about protecting our Russians, and not just our Russians in Ukraine, but our Russian speakers. So that's data point one telling you that certain, certain phenomena that we see today, which are the precondition for Kremlin aggression, were there among liberal Russians in 1990-1991. Second data point, NATO expansion as a conversation, not a reality, was not taking place in 1991 and 1992. If you look back and see when the Soviet Union imploded, that within weeks or days actually, of the, de the demise of the Soviet Union, you had frozen conflicts in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Transnistria, in Southern Ossetia, and Abkhazia. 
Now, the frozen conflict model is the model of Kremlin aggression today. It predates NATO enlargement. Okay, data point three, Crimea. When did Russia take Crimea? At the end of the 18th century. Question, when did Russia take eastern Poland and central Poland? At the end of the 18th century. I don't think it's unreasonable to ask the question, if we had not enlarged NATO, would the front today between Russia and the West be in Warsaw or in Kiev? I agree with Will that the Russians did not like NATO enlargement. And I don't disagree that this plays upon traditional Russian historical sensitivities. But the same nation that complains about being invaded multiple times is the same nation that has invaded other countries more than multiple times. And even someone who is kind of favorably disposed to Putin right now, Henry Kissinger, has said that Russian security is contingent upon the insecurity of its neighbors. Is that an acceptable solution for us? Is that acceptable for us? I don't have any doubt that Poland being in NATO, where it's been a strong member, is very much in our national interest. So I think that even if you had questions about NATO enlargement in the 90s, you'd have to say it probably makes sense. And the reason why it probably makes sense is because those imperial Russian tendencies, which were uh, supercharged in Soviet times, never died. And we see those imperial Russian tendencies today. And those are very much not in American interest. Judy. Yeah. Um, well, I agree with uh, with what John has said, um, and I don't I don't buy the argument that what we're seeing from Putin today is because of uh, quote mistaken U.S. or European policies. I, I don't think they're mistaken policies. I think they are policies, as John said, that are in the U.S. national interest, and they are policies that we should continue to support. Um, you know, they're in line with our values. They're in line with the Helsinki Final Act. They're in line with most generally accepted principles, respect for borders. I mean, about the only, you know, I mean, Russia doesn't agree with it, but maybe the only nation in Europe that doesn't. So I don't think that, um, that we should lower our values or lower the policies that we support um, because of uh, what Russia believes there. In fact, I think the only way we have been mistaken in recent years is not responding strongly enough when Russia has acted. I think, I think in those cases, Ukraine, some would say Georgia, I think those have been mistakes if we haven't been strong enough. The problem is if we would adopt this, you know, Russia doesn't like NATO expansion, therefore we shouldn't, and I'm not saying that, you know, that, that you're arguing that, that anybody up here is, but I think that just emboldens Putin, or emboldens any Russian leader to just keep going. I mean, you know, we're at Eastern Ukraine now. How far is it going to go if we change and we say that, well, okay, you know, I know Russia doesn't like it, so maybe we change our policies. In fact, I'd, I'd, I'd go in another direction, which is, you know, I mean, I think in terms of Georgia and Ukraine, we ought to be out there with a U.S. policy of membership for both of them as soon as we can get it. Because I think that's the only way, first of all, I think it's in our interest to have both of them in the alliance. They both clearly want it. We've always maintained an open door policy. Um, but I think it, it sends a very strong signal as well that, um, uh, that this is the path we're going to take. Uh, just one other thing on the NATO expansion, although I think John has, has really um, 
answer that. We spent a lot of time during the 90s and into the, the 2000s working with Russia, Founding Act, NATO-Russia Council. I mean, we have gone over and above what we should have had to do to try to make it clear. I mean, I, I remember discussion in the 90s about Russia becoming a member of NATO. I mean, we have in so many ways shown that this that they should not consider it a threat. And we can't change their perceptions, but we didn't ignore it. But, you know, we, we, we took it seriously and we, we tried to bring them along. I mean, it clearly didn't work, but I, I don't think that means we should change uh, our policies. Thank you, Judy. Just mm -hmm. as a f f footnote on history, since we agreed to factor in history longer mm -hmm. term, uh, remember that when NATO, after the, the Iron Curtain fell and, and after Russia became the Russian Federation rather than the Soviet Union, we offered a special relationship mm -hmm. to Russia yep. with NATO. And they accepted it. And there were some significant uh, actual ex substantive exchanges in the, in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. But uh, my role is not primarily that of historian or commentator. Yeah, uh, uh, no, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. I have to get an administrative sure. point here. <laughs> for, for those who really don't, don't know, uh, the, this panel, since we started 15 minutes late, is now scheduled to go until 2.30. Will will have to leave at 2.20. The rest of us will be here at 2.30. I'm saying that because I am reserving 30 minutes for the audience comments and discussion, probably starting with General Breedlove and commentary. <laughs> 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 so, uh, all right, so um, now the third round uh, is, uh, and you've already all alluded to, the, to, the, uh, uh, to, to your policies, but in the framework of engagement versus Restraint versus containment. I'd like you to spell out a little bit more, uh, and and I and I also, especially those who have um, a congressional background, also to ask the question: Okay, what kind of policies would the Congress sustain and agree to? Mm -hmm. uh, but but the key questions are: Please, so those of you who uh, who uh, advocate. Well, I advocate uh, does any, you all, everybody advocates renewed engagement in the sense that General Breedlove put it out. I think, you know, if we can find areas of common interest where we can get a good deal, of course, mm -hmm. but, but, but that's, that's an obvious mm -hmm. apple pie and motherhood. But, but renewed, <laughs> so if you advocate, well, I, I think I'm addressing this to you because either you're advocating renewed engagement uh, based on the analysis you've said, uh, or just advocating restraint, but in either case, what do you want to see? What you, would you expect to see from the other, from the Russian side uh, as a response, a positive response, or showing that the policy sure. is working? Uh, uh, in what areas should the U.S. pull back from the wrong things that it's done in the past? And if so, would that be seen as a sign of weakness, or how could we avoid it's being seen that way? Uh, and and finally, uh, well, let me stop right there. Let yeah, me ask, I mean, I'm, ask, I'm glad you talked about. Uh, engagement and restraint not being mutually exclusive because right. they're they're not. I mean, I think we should be restrained in some areas to make sure that we aren't actually creating self-fulfilling prophecies for the kind of in, in, a, in a different direction. Uh, but I also think that we should be engaged. We should find areas of mutual interest to start to build some of that relationship back, including, say, you know, counterterrorism, counterproliferation efforts. On, on trying to kind of to maintain stability that that ultimately I think is uh, in in both of our interests uh, in the long run, uh, so I think we should do that, and we ought to find ways. Uh, and, and the general talked about uh, different kind of lower level discussions. I think those are helpful and fruitful. I also think that uh, we need to. I think we need to kind of 
stop talking about Russia as a, um, uh, the way we do as a potential superpower. I mean, we don't need to rub it in the nose that they're not anymore, but I think we should probably stop telling the American public that this is, you know, the Cold War again. Um, this is a country that has a fraction of the military power of the United States, right? They spend about 66 billion. The United States spends about 600 billion. I, I mean, the, the population of, uh, of Russia is a lot smaller than the United States and Europe combined. Our wealthy allies in Europe uh, are, uh, are far superior in terms of their economic capability than Russia. So it doesn't mean that there aren't dangers. I don't want to sound unrealistic given my plea for realism, but we have to put it in a proper context. And that means there are opportunities because you know, they also have to acknowledge our interests in that region. And, and when John talked about you know, uh, old Europe and, and then uh, the first wave of expansion and the next wave, right? I, I think we can be pretty clear about where, where our vital interests do stand in regards to those current allies versus the issue of expanding further. Okay. Now, these are generalities. Uh, I'd like you to be specific, as we discussed on the phone and as you have in the... Sure. Pr all the printed questions, by the way, we agreed on and sent around in advance. So, <laughs> so uh, you've had time to think about it. So what specifically, what pullback, what other specific actions would you have the next president take? What would you expect of the Russian side specifically, not the generalities? What would you expect specifically? I mean, I would, I would uh, quietly and diplomatically but surely take, the ta take off the table the notion of expanding NATO to include okay, Georgia. Okay, that would be seen as a unilateral concession, would it not? Well, how it happens, I think, is, well, is a... Well, but so, but my, it's a two-barrel question. The second <laughs> shot of the shotgun is, how would it be t seen in Moscow? Would be seen as weakness? How would you make it I think we, seen as a positive? Uh, look, I, I think America is a great country. It's strong. It should be confident about itself. It shouldn't have to worry. It should say, look, we're powerful. We're the most powerful country in the world. We have nuclear weapons. We have the world's strongest military. We have the world's strongest economy. Our European allies are part of that. You know, we just don't have to. I, I just think that we, we're getting too upset about, like, well, they may perceive this as weakness. And then what? Okay. Right? Is that going to, is, is, and then what, going to be well, 1930s again? Good question. Another That's a very good illusionist from somebody who wants to take an historical perspective, right? right. That's what some people think the Munich Agreement was mm -hmm. actually. Right, but not everything Not everything is Munich. And I think <laughs> we have a tendency in the foreign policy community to think that any act like this of is course, going to, right? Course, and no. it's, it's not really. Okay. No, I think, I think the outlines of your, I think your, your, your if I'm correct, you're confirming that a combination of restraint and, uh, and engagement uh, would be a better policy for us. Yes. Right? The, I think the other three panelists all uh, advocate and have already spelled out in some detail a policy of containment. Now, which mm -hmm. of you would like to add further either to your description of that policy and justification of it or to the refutation of the opposite approach. We've heard it not only now, but in, in some of the earlier panels, we heard considerable, uh, and I'd be happy to have come back to your sanctions, uh, net sanctions removal, et cetera. But so who would like to speak next, Evelyn? If, if, if that's okay with sure. you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I really want to respond to that because yes, of course we should not overblow 
Russia's economic power, its political power, uh, it, you know, Russia has no real allies, et cetera. I mean, there's a whole list of things we can list as their weaknesses, but the reality is they are a nuclear power. They do have a lot, they can do a lot of damage. They're doing a lot of damage to us internally in, in reducing the confidence in our electoral system. Um, and of course, everything we've already talked about that they're doing in the international context. To say nothing of, I don't even think we've talked about the abomination of what's happening in Syria, mm -hmm. the, the human rights violations, and I'm sorry I didn't list that with, on the accountability list because that is mm -hmm. just despicable. Um, so I think that you're right that we shouldn't overemphasize what Russia's about, but the problem is, in part, those of us who follow Russia recently have been pushed into this because, because there was a real interest in kind of dismissing Russia and saying, well, they're a small regional power. We don't need to worry about them. And General Breedlove, myself, others in the government who wanted not only our colleagues, but the rest of our country to be aware mm -hmm. of what the risks were and what the objectives were of this country, which is not behaving as a status quo power, we felt we, need to, we needed to spell it out very clearly. And, it's, and as many people have already mentioned, that it's not just about Russia. I worry very much, I was in Japan this summer, I worry very much about what the Chinese are deriving as lessons from our failure to deter Russia. It's about the international order. So I think the first thing the president has to do is come in and say, okay, I support the international order. The United States is the status quo power. We may have differences with countries about how we, you know, how we implement the rules. There are problems with interventions. Humanitarian interventions are being lumped together with other interventions. Let's have a discussion with the Russians about that. But I think we need to be very clear what the rules of the road are and spell that out clearly from day one. And then there's a whole host of policies that you know, I would advocate with regard to Syria in particular and Ukraine and other, other scenarios. Okay, yeah. please. Uh, if I could just please, go ahead. pick up on this, um, <clears throat> because I, I, I agree with what Evelyn has said. And I think in some ways, in terms of the specifics, I think our, our engagement with, or not our engagement, wrong, wrong word, um, uh, that our interaction, thank you, John, with, uh, with Russia almost starts with Syria. I mean, you know, I mean, we've got a lot of issues we're dealing with on the European front, and I'll, and I'll get to those, but I mean, this is where they are really stepping way outside. We allowed a vacuum to be created, in my mind. They stepped in. I think we need to figure out our Syria policy. I agree with you on that. And I think we need to figure out, first of all, you know, stop the discussions in Geneva because it just makes us look weak. Um, figure out what it is we want. Do we get back to Assad must go? Um, I mean, obviously, there's a humanitarian crisis that we have to deal with. We, we probably need to take steps to change the dynamic on the battlefield, but we need to figure those things out. I think that, that some of the, the moves we should be taking, some of them that you've heard discussed, safe havens, humanitarian corridors, um, no-fly zones to protect those, more arms to the rebels. I think a new administration should come in and figure out, is there more that we should do militarily, either U.S. militarily the allies, working with our allies. I think we need to figure out where we're going on Syria. I mean, uh, you know, I, I keep hearing the administration say there's no military solution in Syria. Well, Putin clearly doesn't agree with that. We're the only ones saying that. I think we really need to get that right. So I, I, that would be first 100 days, I think, 
focus on Syria and what needs to happen in Syria is, is one thing because we're letting the Russians set the agenda there and it's too important to let them set the agenda. And on Ukraine, I think Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova kind of all in the same, but, um, but on Ukraine specifically, um, if the Russians and the separatists do not implement Minsk, we should not only increase sanctions, we should be providing arms to, um, to the Ukrainian government and you, you ask the question, what about Congress? Congress is way ahead of the administration on this. I mean, from the beginning of the conflict, there has been legislation on the books authorizing lethal military assistance to the Ukrainians. Um, so it, Congress, I don't think, is going to be a problem on that. You know, on Syria, I think, you know, we have to see. But I, I'd like they to... They have a sanctions bill on Syria. They have too. a sanctions bill, yeah. I think we have to take a step back, though, too, because, you know, David Kramer mentioned something in an earlier panel that I thought was, was absolutely correct. The president has to take leadership, has to own these policies in order to bring along our international partners, bring along the American people. I mean, you know, you might not have agreed with President Bush during, you know, when, uh, on his Europe policy about, you know, freedom agenda, Europe, whole free and at peace. But, you know, when we went to the Bucharest uh, summit, there was not a doubt in any leader's mind that map for Georgia and Ukraine was a presidential priority, which is really the only reason that we got the language that we got in that communique that they will be member nations sometime. President has to own these issues in order to bring others along. So those would just be. Okay, now we have a conflict things. between John having the last word, but also being the one who, with Alina, laid down the groundwork of leaving 30 minutes. So do you have some comments before we open to the question? <laughs> if you want, I'll see my comments. <laughs> Your decision. You're the host. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll, I'll speak. Uh, first hundred days. One, the president has to state publicly our interest in the global order and the transatlantic relationship in strengthening NATO and the EU. Two, uh, he, should re he or she should re-endorse the Warsaw Summit decision on increasing our military capabilities in the Baltic states, Romania, and Poland, and perhaps increasing them. Three, make clear that the war in Eastern Ukraine, there's a war in Eastern Ukraine, not a civil war, and the United States is going to provide support for Ukraine uh, in all ways possible we will announce our introduction of new sanctions and our intention to work with the Europeans on new sanctions. We will provide defensive military lethal weapons to Ukrainians, but we will not announce it. That will be done clandestinely and let the Russians discover it on the battlefield. Uh, we begin, uh, oh, Syria. Syria is a place where I might not agree with Judy, because I don't think we have any options in Syria that are, that are acceptable. The opposition people we support cannot win. Um, but Funnily, we are enabling Putin to look good in Syria for two, for, for two reasons. One is what everyone talks about. We let him act and we don't act. Um, what I would do if I were president of the United States is every time he hits our guys, we would hit Assad's guys. Mm -hmm. And we could do that with standoff missiles so that there's no danger of a U.S.-Russian conflict. Um, but we have been very effective going after ISIS. And our effectiveness going after ISIS has enabled Assad with Russian support to make gains on the road to Aleppo. So there's a kind of an interesting paradox here. And if you want to know more about that, I did a piece for Real Clear World on Monday. You can take a look. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, I agree we should also engage a dialogue with Russia on strategic weapons, and also, very, very important, deconfliction of encounters of our warplanes and our ships and our planes 
um, which could lead to actual death and then a real confrontation. Thank you. Now I'm going to uh, vary the rules just slightly because I want the panelists from any panelists from this morning, starting with General Breedlove uh, and our keynote speaker, of course. Uh, if, if you have a one-minute comment, uh, please raise your hands and I'll recognize you. Uh, microphones. General Breedlove here up front. So just to this last remark, I mean, we have a good uh, uh, ink C that works in a U.S.-Russia relationship. And Can it's you spell out the acronym, sorry? Ink C stands for incidents at sea. We've turned it into ink C land air. Uh -huh. we, do, we do all of them. What would really be good is if we could develop the same paradigm with NATO and Russia. There had been pushback from Russia about that for a while. They wanted only to deal with the U.S. And I think now they're more open to maybe doing this with NATO. That would be a great first step, an ink whatever uh, there. And uh, Will, I may have mis misheard you. If, if I heard you correctly, or misheard, misheard mm -hmm. forgive me. I, I, I'm not a fan of we're America, we don't have to sort of, you know, get excited. Um, I, I think that our inaction in a couple of places, especially as it relates to Crimea and Donbass, have bought us some problems. And I think that the people of Donetsk and Lugansk might have a different opinion of how things went with them, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that those people have opinions about whether the United States should have done more for them. I get it. I would, if I were them, I would want it too. Uh, in fact, if you know, this is in, in all history, someone would love to you know have someone else come ride to their rescue. The question for me is, is uh, do I want to potentially increase conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union for something that is peripheral to U.S. interests? Sorry, Russia. Right? <laughs> all this talk about the all this Cold War mentality to my right has got me. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, but I, I want to avoid going there. Um, so so I, what I say is, like, is are, are, do we want to have conflict between, um, you know, the United States and Russia that leads to problems that potentially will drag us in or draw us into it? Because if I'm from Des Moines or if I'm from, you know, to, from Houston, if I'm from New Orleans, if I'm from Seattle, I don't see how any of these places being in, out, under, over uh, the Russians actually makes them any safer. I mean, and we have to draw lines in the world because we can't police everything and provide results everywhere. That doesn't mean we can't be a leader in the world, but I think we have to draw lines between vital and peripheral interests. Quick 30-second response. No, no, I, he got it. He made my response right at the end. I, I don't think we're in disagreement. I just think that we have to be a part of leading. And when we don't be a part of leading, we get a lot of chaos. And so. Okay, any other panelists first? No? Uh, Mitchell, Mitchell Arnstein in the middle aisle there. So excuse me if I'm slightly confused, but it sounds like a lot of this advice uh, is advice to uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and not advice to Donald Trump, who's announced that he wishes to have a summit meeting uh, with Putin to uh, arrange uh, a better agreement, you know, kind of on uh, cooperation, et cetera. Am I, am I hearing this wrong? I mean, is this more advice to, to Hillary Clinton? Or is this also, are, are you saying that this is the same advice you would give also to Donald Trump? I mean, I would have thought, you know, when we're there in Moscow, you know, sort of palling around this meeting that he's planning to have, you know, uh, 
is this the kind of stuff that's realistically going to be listened to, or you want to? Well, him would to the be national hearing? interest of the United States be any different, whoever is president? Mm -hmm. You might have to <laughs> couch it differently to persuade one candidate versus the other, but. I thought that's what we were talking about. What should be the U.S. What should the next president, whoever he or she is, what should what should it be? What's in our long-term strategic national interest? Is it, but I, that's my my view. Yeah. Any uh, panelists want to no. address? I would just say, if it was President Trump, I would put in something about building a Trump Tower in um, St. <laughs> <Saint> Petersburg. <laughs> Any other comments I think, on? I think I mean uh, you know General Breedlove. He, he's somebody who goes and meets with both sides of the aisle, and yeah. I don't think he changes what he says. He uses the same set of speaking points mm -hmm. with both sides of the aisle. I think the message is, needs to be delivered to both sides. Absolutely. OK, other questions? Yes, please. Uh, up here, up front. And others, raise your hand so we'll know the next one. One, two. OK, well, we'll take two more, and then we'll get another round. Yeah. Um, I'm Harlan Ullman. I want to thank the panel for taking a 12-hour discussion and compressing it so admirably. <laughs> but I got some really bad news for you. The first 100 days, the president is going to have to be forming an administration, um, going to be more concerned with economic policies, probably appointing a Supreme Court judge and probably a new director of the FBI, and could be dealing with all sorts of legal issues. So uh, the likelihood is that they will form a study group, which will take months to come out about Russia. I hate to say That's that, but I suspect. Should. You should listen to us. I understand. Uh, my question is this, however. Uh, Donald Trump has demeaned NATO, saying it's obsolete, and now says they're just freeloaders. And Hillary Clinton was the author of the strategic pivot to Asia. What incentives do you think, or disincentives, can we provide to Mr. Putin to change, as General Breedlove says, his behavior? I've heard a lot about ideas, but nothing about what actions and incentives can we have to change or at least get Russia to do things that we would like them to do and to stop doing things that we don't. Thank you. Uh, we're going to collect three questions. Please stand up and identify yourself. Agnia Grigas, Atlantic Council. Um, my question is, uh, we know that Russia is trying to build a Russian world, try to trying to co-opt the Russian compatriots abroad. We also see that it's very difficult right now to engage with the Russian government. Uh, what ideas could the new administration have in trying to engage that Russian world themselves, uh, to try to engage uh, Russians and Russian speakers both inside and outside of Russia who um, have more liberal values, um, who value democracy and so on? And the third question is back on the aisle, and then we'll have it next round. Back on the side there. Hi, uh, my name is Dmitry Prubrzhensky. Thank you. Very interesting and informative discussion. Uh, my question kind of piggybacks off the last question. So this morning I had an interesting random conversation with a girl from Moscow who was here visiting, and I asked her what was going on in Moscow, and she said nothing good. And then her next line was that Putin is the greatest president Russia could potentially have because he is keeping Russia from being put on its knees by the United States of America. But this is having a huge price on the people domestically, economically,
economically. So, and she obviously felt that the United States was not only against Putin, but was also against Russia and, and all, against all Russians. So my question is, uh, what if the next president in the first 100 days, I'm just thinking outside the box, if he gathered 20 successful entrepreneurs and asked them to go to Moscow and to help with small business development in Moscow, would you approve of something like this? Or would you think it is, it's, a, it's appeasement to President Putin, just to kind of show the Russian people that were with them? And my other quick question is, the speaking of the post-1945 order, what do you think can be done to strengthen the United Nations and international law? Because I haven't heard the United Nations mentioned today. Thank you. Well, those are tall orders. Who, uh, who wants to take a stab at each of the questions? Could I, could I ask a clarifying question? Um, did you say incentives to Russia or incentives to Trump to change? No, incentives to Putin. To Putin? Yeah, incentives to Putin. Yeah, the okay. questions are incentive to Putin, yeah. okay. democracy yeah. in the equation, right. and then specific yeah. ideas to okay. change the balance with, Putin, with uh, Moscow. Uh, I'll give a stab at the first one. I think the incentives to Putin are negative incentives. Um, I think there are costs. I don't, if you go with any type of incentive, and I can't even think what it might be, I don't know, maybe one of my panelists, uh, fellow panelists can come up with it, but I think it'll be seen as weakness because you, there's no change in behavior. As General Breedlove says, it starts with behavior. If there is no change in behavior and you're giving them an incentive, I'm, I'm, he'll pocket that and we'll go on to the next one. I'm not, I'm not sure if the dynamic works with somebody like Putin, I think a negative, you know, ratchet up sanctions, give arms to the Ukrainians, um, do whatever in Syria, whether it's safe havens, no-fly zones, whatever it might be, those are incentives Incentive in a way, doesn't but they're disincentives. It doesn't mean, mean yeah. using leverage, using pressure. Yeah, doing to do it. I mean, in yeah, that yeah. sense, you know, I, I would take it that way. But uh, let me... Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with Judy that the incentives are we will relax sanctions, we will eliminate yeah. sanctions yeah. if you yeah. do X, Y, or yeah. Z. Putin himself has a nice conditionality for coming back into the, into the mm -hmm. nuclear disposition agreement with us, so we can take the same approach. If you... Um, you know, come back into that, that agreement, for example, we will do these things. Um, act, we won't do the things that he has on his list, though, <laughs> but, because they run up against our values. I think on the issue of engaging the Russian people, that is a real predicament, because the propaganda machine in Russia is so strong that the message that that woman gave is pretty much what the government wants her to take away, that it's a mess in Russia, I guess, economically, because of the West, which is not actually the case. The sanctions that we developed when I was in the government were targeted, targeted at Putin cronies, quote unquote, um, and they were not targeted at the Russian people. But the problem, or the the good fortune was that they coincided with the fall in oil prices. So it looked like the sanctions affected the Russian people. The other problem, though, and this is the big problem why this delegation wouldn't work, this business delegation idea wouldn't work, is that this, the biggest problem that Russia has is the structure of their economy, which isn't going to change because that is what ensures that Putin and his cronies stay in power. Until you can change and make it a truly you know, normal, non-corrupt economy, I don't know how we can get business people to go there and do serious business, aside from the ones that are already working there in the extractive industries and other industries like that, where the Russian state will guarantee more or less, but not always, 
um, their investment. So the lack of rule of law, the lack of protection for international business in Russia is the biggest problem with your proposal. I do, however, think that dangling those ideas out in front of the Russians while we're taking the harder actions is not a bad idea because at some point some Russian leader in the Kremlin is going to have to turn around and cooperate with us and Europe because the reality is that the future for Russia lies in Europe and that the pivot to Asia is real except that what was left out is that we pivot with our friends and partners economically and politically not militarily necessarily because hopefully we can avoid that um, towards Asia. And so there's a lot of lack of information, but that's, I've spoken enough. Good. Uh, does anybody want to try uh, I, I just have one thing, the, uh, one, one thing to add. So he, he brought up the UN, and, and I don't think we've talked enough about our European allies in terms of what they can do to help handle Russia. So I want to bring that into it, which is I, I think the United States has to find ways uh, to, uh, not, to incentivize uh, either carrot or stick our European allies to step up to their responsibility. They are not meeting their responsibilities as part of this alliance, and we need greater burden sharing. So if Russia is the threat that, we're, that, that, that people here are talking about, and we need to do this, we need to expect those mm -hmm. folks to, to step up. And so leadership uh, would be to press them uh, more than we have been. And, and if yeah. I could elaborate, because that gets to answering the question about the diaspora, because um, I know the Baltic states are now doing more than they have before with regard to their ethnic Russian and Russian-speaking minorities. But that is the kind of thing that we can do, and we can persuade them to do more to address the real grievances that, that Russian speakers and ethnic Russians have. Mm -hmm. On this round of questions, do you have anything to add, John? Mm -hmm. I would just add on the Russian world piece. We're doing a little bit, but we could do more in terms of building up um, information programming, television mm -hmm. and radio in Russian language, um, which would attract them to our side of the information sphere. Yeah, the propaganda war is completely lopsided now. Okay, so first question here, the second question there. Is there a third? Let's get our hostess. Uh, <laughs> you've done all this much work, I can ask questions. Okay, so one, two, three, and then we'll go another round after that. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Jack Kropansky, I'm unaffiliated. Uh, my question is, can the uh, members of the panel offer some positive suggestions to the next administration for how to deconflict our legitimate democracy promotion uh, uh, initiatives with r what Russia perceives as its, quote, legitimate uh, security interests? Or is that even possible and we should just uh, acknowledge that it's going to be conflict and the only question is how will the conflict unfold? The second question is on the aisle, the middle aisle. Uh, David Colton, actually picking back on, on that comment. Uh, Henry Kissinger uh, once remarked that uh, national power is means times will. And American will, it seems, is fractured because of what we've seen here today on the panel, which was that we still are caught in relitigating 2002, 2003 with the professional wrestling notion that it's realism versus the neocons of 2002. I'd like to ask my question based on what Ambassador Herbst and uh, Ellen had mentioned, which is, isn't the larger macro question that we're facing now a, an international challenge to liberal democracy and an anti-liberal democratic authoritarian push that we see in France with Le Pen, that we see with Orban in Hungary, that we see in the UK with the Brexit vote, that we see here in the United States and elsewhere? 
My question is, for the first 100 days of a president, how can we articulate, how can a president articulate that support for liberal international democracy is not 2002, is not 2003, not to Will's concerns about overextension in that kind of emotional things, but what Bob Osgood said, who was a founding member at SICE, mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins SICE, a dean at SICE, where he said in 1954 that America must recognize and reconcile national interest with idealism. That is national power. That is means times will. And I'm interested in what the ambassador and Ellen and the rest of the panel have to say. Thank you. And the third question, back there uh, on the left. Thank you, uh, Dominic Talkstoff from the Heinrich Böll um, Foundation. Uh, identify yourself a little uh, louder. Dominic Talkstoff uh, from the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Um, I have a quick question on arming Ukraine oh, um, and the implications for transatlantic relations. Um, yeah, I mean, arming Ukraine either on an official way or inofficial way, but what do you, what do you think that will do to transatlantic relations? I mean, uh, we know that the Europeans are not really completely um, united on that question, how to deal with that. Um, but right now, there's more or less a consensus in Europe, we don't want to uh, sort of arm Ukraine. Um, and you said also transatlantic relations are also a priority. So how do you bring this together? Is there not a contradiction involved? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Mm -hmm. So I, I promised Anya a word for all her work Alina. at this conference. Does somebody have a microphone near here? Um, Alina, I'm sorry, Alina, that's it, Anya. Um, yeah. We know you're nervous, Adrian. <laughs> I'm not nervous, we're running out of time. Um, in any case, uh, yes, not all Slavic people are named Anna. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so thank you More for this today. discussion, right? Uh, just to be a bit of a, I guess, contrarian here, and to go back to the sanctions questions, this is something that all of you have discussed as a, as a policy tool, right? And we talked about in the previous panel. The one argument is that our sanctions policy has had the unintended consequence of pushing Russia further towards China, right? Mm -hmm. So Russia has also gone through a self-identified uh, pivot east, right? That pivot has not been that successful because Chinese banks you know, don't bankroll like Goldman Sachs. Um, and so they haven't received the kind of credit I think that they were looking for um, in light of lack of access to Western credit loans. Uh, but my question to you is, what are the unintended consequences of increasing and ratcheting up sanctions then? Are we going to see more of this alliance between Russia and China? And then as a consequence of that, how will that affect our policies and our national interests, right? And my last question, which actually is from Mr. Japivsky and to my left, is realistically, what kind of deal can you actually get with Russia, given all the tools we've talked about, sanctions, uh, strengthening the eastern flank of NATO, all of these things, what, what kind of deal would you all want to see? Okay, who wants to speak first? Yeah, any, unf any unfortunately, I have to take off because I have a train to make. But I would just say those are the, exactly the kind of questions that I think we need to ask. Because if you if you just say like, hey, we need to arm the Ukrainians, we need to push the Russians in in Syria and exert leadership in all these other places and expand NATO and really stick it to them, doesn't that provoke actually the kind of balancing behavior we've expected in world history since Thucydides? And with that, I will say goodbye. <laughs> Thank you, Will, very much. And thank you to the Cook Institute's uh, support of this conference. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't we go in direct order? So, uh, okay. I think, I mean, I think on the question about democracy and the Kissinger quote, 
as you would imagine, I agree. So I don't really feel the need to elaborate too much on that. I, I, do, I believe that the next president should speak clearly and that will get us uh, pretty far towards the will. And that actually leads me to answer the second question about arming Ukraine um, because I believe that in Europe there is, as you said, no consensus, but if anything, kind of a uh, going along with the current status quo situation with regard to our support to Ukraine. But I think if a new American president came in and articulated a new, more robust policy of support for Ukraine, and not just Ukraine, but the other countries we mentioned before, that our allies in Europe would follow suit and come along with us. And frankly speaking, some of the Europeans are more ahead. Obviously, the ones in NATO who are frontline states are, are, are more, possibly more ahead than we are. Um, so I think on the sanctions, I agree that that is a danger and on the realistic deal, uh, I think we're going to see kind of a standstill, but we have to be strong so that Russia doesn't take more territory, take more liberties um, and feel emboldened to, you know, try to prevail over its neighbors and in the international arena. I don't know whether with this current regime in the Kremlin we can change their mind, but the best we can do is try. This is why I think things like the Iran deal, the agreed framework with North Korea, they're good because they buy you time. So whatever we can do to buy time until there's some other change is, is, is at least is the least we can do. You know, I just comment just just a little bit on the uh, on the Ukrainian thing, and 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 really, I I agree with with Evelyn on this. Um, yes, there's a split in Europe about arming the Ukrainians, but I think I'd go back to the leadership issue. I think the U.S. really hasn't articulated our policy very well, or to the extent we have, there's clearly ambivalence or opposition on the part of the administration to providing weapons to Ukraine. In that type of situation, I don't see the Europeans stepping forward and doing it. I think if we were to do it, if a new president came in and it is now the policy of the United States to arm Ukraine, obviously it wouldn't be done without consultation with, with the allies. But I think there might be more of a willingness, even if it's not at 28, but maybe more of a willingness with some who are willing to, you know, coalition of the willing, um, uh, they, they might be more uh, willing to do that. And I don't think that's in conflict with, you know, an emphasis on good transatlantic relations. I think in some ways it supports it because anything we can do to get, a, get more peace on the border, obviously, in those areas, um, would improve transatlantic relations. So I think it, new president, new policies, I think a lot of things might be possible in Europe, but it, it will take presidential engagement to, to, get, to get some of this done. John? In support of the ladies relating to um, arming Ukraine, the pattern of the past 60 years has been take, the taking of strong military measures in Europe in support of Western security has required American leadership in the face of European opposition. Anyone familiar with the INF, the, the deployment of intermediate-range nuclear missiles in Europe in the early and mid-'80s knows this exactly, and it came out just fine. We deployed the missiles despite hundreds of thousands on the streets in Britain, in Italy, in Germany. They accepted it afterwards, and after that, we had an INF deal with the Russians. Uh, on the question of how we come to a deal with Putin, I don't know if we come to a deal with Putin or with Russia. We may not. 
The point is he's pursuing aggressive policies that challenge our interests. And the various measures we've talked about, sanctions, arms for Ukraine, weakened him. Hopefully they would lead to his defeat in Ukraine, but if they don't, we increase the cost of his, of his activities, which will make him less likely to intervene elsewhere, or if he chooses to intervene elsewhere, he's weaker as a result of these stronger policies. Finally, the point about an international challenge to the liberal order. You know, whether it's Putin or Erdogan or Lee or Duarte, the point is, I mean, it's absolutely true that this is what's happening. Although I wouldn't put Brexit in that category, and I'm not certain if we even put Trump in that category, but we can argue about the details. But coming back to our conversation, the poster boy for this challenge is Putin. We defeat him, or we give him a blow, that knocks the wind out of this movement globally. One more reason for us to do the smart thing, which is very much in our interests. And I think Bob Osgood, were he alive, would recognize this is a case where our ideals and our interests are more or less in sync. Thank you. Uh, so before I thank, the, we all thank the panel, uh, one, uh, as somebody who's worked on these thought, think, thought about and uh, written about these the questions of democracy and is it compatible, could Putin ever be persuaded? The answer is no, it seems to me. It's very clear that his vision and his, raison de, uh, his, uh, his system, his regime, depends on the non-spread of the kind of liberal ideal, ideals that, we, that Bob Osgood talked about and others have mentioned. It cannot, cannot be done. That doesn't mean we can't act in a way that is non-threatening if we do, draw some, some borders beyond which we will not. I think we have to pull back on how much democracy promotion we do right inside Russia. But the, but the idea that we could ever persuade him that it's compatible, I think, is, is definitely not real. Uh, I would like to start by thanking, before I thank the panel, all of the wonderful staff of the Atlantic Council and my deputy, Maya, if you will stand up for a second, because I think you've worked every bit as hard today, and uh, maybe others of my heaven from other, the other sponsoring organizations. And, and to, our, to our outstanding panel, our outstandingly articulate panel, uh, where I think we got a very, very good, uh, not only review of the issues, but deepening of the issues. So I hope you will all work on deepening the understanding of the American public and the next administration. This conference, we will produce a conference report or a summary that will be sent around, uh, to, will hopefully send it around to all of you. Uh, but uh, we, this is to be continued, and we thank you all for your extraordinarily uh, active engagement and, and endurance lasting all this day. <laughs> thank you very much, and thank you to the panel. Thank you.